turn in your Bibles, and no, this is not a misprint. I'll explain what I'm doing, okay? Yes, the sermon series is on Ephesians, and yes, we're looking at the book of Romans this morning. Jeff's mind, how it works, let me try to explain. Where we are in the book of Ephesians is God has given the command through Paul. Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled with the Spirit. And we looked at last week that command and how it manifests itself, some of the characteristics in terms of community life together, the idea of worshiping together, submitting to one another. There's an order to things, being thankful, having the song of the gospel. But I think in terms of if that's what it looks like, one of the things I want to do is to be as practical as I can and say, how do we follow that command? Do you realize that that is a command of Paul's? He didn't make it as a suggestion. He didn't sit there and say, oh, by the way, God's a triune God and, and, you know, remember the Holy Spirit every now and then. He actually commanded, it's an imperative, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Where I could really have a lot of fun with all of us if I said, I'm going to give you a test right now. And I'm going to say, I want you to write an essay on how you exactly be filled with the Spirit. Hmm, be an interesting what kind of answers we got. And so it's for this reason that I want us to look, and we've looked at various, I had Shane read out of Galatians chapter 5, where it talked about walking consistently, walking according to the Spirit. And what I want to look at is one of the great chapters in all the Bible, and I told Sherry I'd give a plug for VBS with this, the Mount Everest. Do you get that in terms of, see that VBS has its Everest theme? I tried. Uh, the Mount Everest of the New Testament, Romans chapter 8, has an awful lot to say about the Holy Spirit. It's probably one of the greatest chapters on the Holy Spirit, discussing who he is, his character, his identity, what he's done for us, what he's doing, his ministry to us, and his ministry for us. And the fullness of the Spirit is all about how to experience, and when I say experience, I don't just mean emotional, but experience in the fullness of our being, loving him with our mind, loving him with our heart, loving him with our soul, loving him with our strength, loving him with our energy, the fullness, what's meant in that full, the Holy Spirit is the key to experiencing God. Because the Holy Spirit, see, I wonder how much we realize that Christianity is an experiential religion. The Holy Spirit actually lives in you. He takes up residence within you. He's not just visiting. He didn't come on vacation where he's staying a week and then going home. He actually dwells within you. And thus he's the key to experiencing God. And Romans 8 is all about the Holy Spirit, who's the key to experiencing and walking out of that fullness of God. So let's look at, I want to just pick one passage out of this, Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 11. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. 
Paul is building his entire argument in Romans chapter 8, much like a composer would present a symphony. And the crescendo, the climax of it, is in chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, the very end of it, where Paul says, for I am sure. Now I want you to listen carefully to these words, because he's saying, for I know, for I'm sure. So he's not saying I'm skeptical, I'm not saying I doubt. He's saying, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's the end of Paul's argument. And his explosion at the end shows us, because he's, what is he teaching on? The doctrine of the Holy Spirit, leading to this courage, this faith, this assurance that basically nothing in all creation, nothing in all time, none of our failures, none of our baggage, none of our regrets, none of anything we've done, not angels, not demons, not the spirit world, not the physical world, not the natural world, nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's showing us that the business of the Holy Spirit is to convince believers, to give us greater and greater assurance that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Why? Because he wants us to live out of that governing reality. To live out, we love only as we are loved. We give only as we know we've been given to. That's what it means to Minister out of fullness, out of the overflowing. I need to share this week in my own prayer life, my own devotional life. I was reading the Spruce Creek Bible plan, and this week one of the readings it had us do was a little itty-bitty tiny one chapter, just a few verses out of the letter of Jude. New Testament, by the way. Jude's not even back there with Habakkuk and Micah and those guys. Okay, how often do we read on Jude? Not often. But Jude 21, verse 21, doesn't even say a chapter, just Jude verse 21 says, and again, I wonder how often we notice all the imperatives that are in the New Testament and pay attention to them. Because this command, not a suggestion, this command says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, why would Jude be telling us, be commanding us, be insisting for us to keep ourselves in the love of God, it must mean that we often struggle with abiding, with living out of, with keeping ourselves. It also must mean that there are a myriad of things that bombard and batter us to tell us we're not loved, to remind us and say where it must not be loved. It could be our past, could be our present, could be fears, could be things we're going through. Obviously, it's a struggle in life to keep yourself in the love of God. And here's Paul. Let me put scripture with scripture. You need to have scripture to interpret scripture. Saying the Holy Spirit is the key to convincing you, to keeping you, the key to you experiencing and being convinced that God loves you, to obey that command, to keep yourself so that then you could bear fruit and live out of that love. I don't think I am using exaggeration when I say maybe it's one of the most important things we need to do. So how do you do it? How does Paul speak about it from this when he talks about the Holy Spirit changing us, the Holy Spirit being in the business of convincing us we're loved by God? We see in this text that the Spirit gives us two things. The Spirit, first of all, gives us a new direction in life, and then he gives us and plants a new seed in life, a new direction and a new life. 
Look with me at verse 5, and I want you to see the new direction. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, what is the work of the Holy Spirit? Let's step back for a second. Notice it says in these verses that the person who lives either one of two ways. We're talking functionally. You're living according to one of two things. The flesh, and the flesh can be defined as life apart from God. Doesn't mean that you're necessarily doing a bunch of bad things, but it means you're doing things apart from the foundation of union with God. Or the spirit, that means you're doing things according to what he desires. You're doing things according to his life, according to what he sets out. So you have either the things of the flesh or the things of the spirit basically as the functional absorbing object of your thought, your interest, your passion, your affection, and your purpose. So now what are the things of the spirit? When the text says, what, are the, what does the spirit desire? Remember what we looked at in recent weeks when we talked about the fullness of the spirit. John chapter 16 verse 14 talks about the essence of of the Spirit's ministry. And Jesus said that the central function of the Spirit is to bring glory to Jesus by taking from what he achieved, taking from what he accomplished. What did he accomplish? His life for us, his death for us, his resurrection for us, and his ascension for us. And notice I said for us, everything he achieved is for his covenant people, his church. He did it as your substitute. That's why we sang in the praise song earlier this morning, dressed in his righteousness. That means clothed in everything he achieved. Now the spirit is taking from everything he achieved and he is applying it to your life. J.I. Packer worded it this way. He says that the spirit is like a floodlight that shines on Jesus. And if a floodlight is doing its job properly, you never see the floodlight. You always see the object that the floodlight is shining on. And that means the Holy Spirit's main role is not to zap you with power or energy. The Holy Spirit is not a force. Okay, the Holy Spirit is not Star Wars. May the force be with you. The Holy Spirit is a person. We need to recognize that the Holy Spirit is a person. And you get power and abilities only through the Spirit personally manifesting and mediating the reality of Christ to you. This is how he works. This is the essence of work. That means when you use the means he's given you. Theologians call these the ordinary means of grace. When you use the tools he's given you, his word and prayer and the sacraments and our community life together. The point is not knowing the word to be a smart person. The point is not prayer so you feel better about yourself. The point of the means of grace, they're just that, means by which the Holy Spirit can get in there and show you the beauty and the wonder and the magnitude and the greatness and the majesty and the glory of Jesus for you on your behalf. Apply Jesus and his beauty to get you to fall rapturously in love with Jesus Christ. So read the word to know Jesus and pray to know Jesus and be together to know Jesus. The passage is constantly, as we work our way through, what is he con Paul contrasting? He's contrasting the person who builds his life on the foundation of God through Christ by the influence of the Spirit 
and the person who's building his life on the foundation of being, in essence, well, this is what's meant by the flesh, the determiner of his own life, the Lord of his own life. See, you can only have one Lord, either Jesus or something else. Jesus is kind of funny about sharing his lordship. He doesn't look too kindly about doing that. That's what's meant by the jealousy of God. And if you follow with me through this text, the contrast, this according to the flesh and according to the spirit continues. Verse 6 says, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind of the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So now, now he's getting to a contrast of consequences, a contrast of results. And death here, he's not immediately talking about final judgment. It could lead to that. But death here is separation from God. To set the mind on the flesh is death, even in this life. Because you were built to live with God. You were built to commune with God. You were built for intimacy and connection, to find your purpose in God's purpose, your meaning in God's meaning. And death is separation from God, meaning if you're living on the foundation of yourself, if you are your own Lord or anything else other than Jesus is your Lord, Paul here is saying that means estrangement, alienation, disintegration, things basically falling apart. One of my favorite illustrations is one I heard Tim Keller give years and years ago when he says, I want you to think of a chicken that you put in your oven. You cook up this time. It's always dangerous to have food illustrations before lunch, I know. But the chicken's heated. It's good. You smell it, and then you bring it out of the oven. You put it on the table. It's too hot to eat. You've got to wait a little bit. So you wait about 15 minutes. And what is it doing? You eat it then because it's lost some of its energy because that's how life is. You leave it for three hours, and you're not going to want to eat it after that. Kind of yucky. It's not so good. You leave it for three days, now it's really not good. It's a health hazard. If you just let it be, if you don't touch it and you leave it alone, what is it doing? It is going to ashes. It's incohering. It's disintegrating. It's falling apart. And Tim Keller says, look in the mirror. He says, life apart from God is going to ashes. You're putting yourself in the mirror in a fire and you're going to ashes quickly. To set the mind on the flesh is death. The Bible says the whole world is burning in a flame of sin. See, sin is not, we've got to define our words and our terms and our theological concepts properly. Sin is not simply breaking the rules, breaking the law. When you want to be your own master, when you are determining What's right and wrong for yourself? Tim Keller says sin is fire against the design of the way God wants things to be. You are living against the way God built you. You are living against your design. You're breaking how he built you. And when you look at verses 7 and 8, it tells us why life and why you and I fall apart, apart from the intervention of God, apart from God implanting this new direction in you. We're at enmity with God, and God is the object of our enmity. Verses 7 and 8 says that not only do we not obey God, we can't. Verse 8 expands the event, the extent of this impossibility, covering the whole range of what is pleasing to God. 
It's saying it's a moral and spiritual impossibility for us to please God. It's not a matter of will. It's a matter of ability. What theologians call the doctrine of total depravity, I think, I'm not looking to change the terminology, but I think what's meant by that is really the doctrine of total inability. I've used this illustration a million times before. I'm five foot three. I'd like to say five four, but I think I'm closer to five three. You can hold a gun to my head and say slam dunk that basketball. I would love to do a LeBron James on everybody and do that. My will can be engaged and do that. My desire can be engaged in wanting to do that. I can even train and train for months in doing that, but I'll never have the ability to do it. This text is telling us without the intervention of God giving us a new direction and a new ability, you don't have the ability to please God. But look with me. See, you've got to notice when you read the Bible, the transitions, because verse 9 makes this exciting transition. It says, you, however, and follow this through. Right after he says, you can't please God, he says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And that is, if God has given you through the spirit, here's our second point, new life and being filled with the spirit you've got to recognize you have this new direction and you have new life you however this is who you are this is your identity see earlier in chapter six paul worded it this way he says we know that our old self was crucified with jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin see you realize when you are a christian You're not simply following Jesus. You're not simply believing in Jesus. You're actually incorporated into Jesus. Which means everything that Jesus accomplished becomes your possession. And being filled with the Spirit is actually how we possess our possessions. And part of our possession, listen to that. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. I want you to notice a couple of things with me as we just kind of work our way through this text. Notice the identity and character of the Holy Spirit when it says here, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. He is God. Notice how many times interchangeably and synonymously You've got Paul saying spirit, spirit of God, spirit of Christ, spirit of him. These are all used because it's so important for the encouragement of showing and revealing and teaching us that the spirit has given us new life. Christianity says God is one. He is one God existing in three persons. What we call the doctrine of the Trinity, the father, the son, and the spirit are so one that when one comes, they all come. And this is amazing because no other religion makes this claim that actually God comes to live with you. You have new life because God actually takes up residence with you. He lives in you. Notice it even says if he doesn't live with you and in you, you don't belong to Christ. That's kind of a scary warning. That if he's not taken up residence with you, you don't belong to him. If you don't have the spirit living in you, you're not a Christian. There's a very big difference between somebody visiting and somebody actually coming to live with you. 
I've told you the story. I've lived, this is my 13th year living in Florida. Before we lived in Florida, my parents retired to St. Augustine. So we would come and Joel Levy and I would take vacation every summer and we'd come down and spend a week or so with my parents and we loved it. Go out to dinner, send them to the beach, go play golf, do stuff like that, have fun. It was great vacation. I loved it. When we first moved here, January of 2003, we hadn't had our apartment yet, hadn't bought our house yet, so we lived with my parents for three months. Now, I love my parents. I'm not, they may listen to this on the internet. I gotta be careful. But living with them was drastically different than visiting them. I would do it again. It's a good thing. But it's different. There's a new intimacy. There are new challenges because living and visiting are not the same thing. Especially if you're in a smaller house or an apartment. Everything you do, they do. Everything you smell, they smell. Everything you see, they see. You read, they read. You watch on TV, they watch on TV. Get where I'm going with this? God's not, a take, God's not taking a vacation in your soul or spirit. He's taking up residence within you. What type of conversation do you have him listening to? What type of things is he watching on TV with you? What, how is God spending his time with you? What is he, what are you subjecting him to? Now let's apply this in a couple of ways as I kind of bring this to a close here this morning. A couple of things I want us to think about. See, first of all, if what I just said doesn't trouble you at all, if it doesn't lead to any sort of conviction, any sort of Grief. Basically, again, I'll quote Tim Keller, if you can live easily with sin, basically swim in sin is what he calls it, without it bothering you or troubling you, I want to give you what I hope is a very loving warning. The text tells us maybe you should ask yourself if you really belong to Christ, because the text says that if you belong to Christ, the spirit of Christ lives and dwells within you, which means he is changing you. Now, let me be clear, he's changing you progressively. One of the ways he's changing you is by making you uncomfortable with sin. He's making you grieve over the condition of your heart. Do you ever grieve over the lack of passion in your prayers, the lack of warmth that you have in your prayers, the lack of fire that you have in your worship, the lack of passion that you have in relationships? Do you ever struggle and grieve over that? That's a good thing. That's an evidence of life. Did you see what it, what it read here? It's unrighteousness that kills you. Righteousness gives you life. And a part of that is if you are missing and feeling the lack of life, that's a sign of life. So the second thing I want you to think about is take comfort. Be encouraged if you struggle with sin. Don't stay there, but, but be that's an evidence of a sign of life. If you're troubled over sin, that's a good thing. And I want to say one more thing about that. I want us to follow through with us the logic of this. I didn't print verses 1 through 4 of Romans chapter 8, the beginning of this. But I want you to remember that if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation for the Christian. Now, what do I mean by that? Again, Tim Keller puts it very well. He says, here's how, how so often we live. We become a Christian. We receive Christ. We put our faith in Christ. And we kind of go, yes, I'm forgiven. I'm not condemned. That's great. And then we sin. And we go, oh, God doesn't like me. 
Condemned. Terrible. Repentance. Okay, good. Forgiveness again. And we go, Tim Keller calls this daisy theology. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. One of the things you have to do is quit that. Because the text says, there is therefore now no condemnation. So don't be convicted because you're afraid God will condemn you. Condemnation doesn't exist. Did Jesus say on the cross after he was about to give up his spirit and die? I've accomplished 73% of their judgment for them. He said, it is finished. Do you believe those words? Do those words impact your day-to-day life that he said, it is finished? Now, life apart from him will still produce consequences. It produces death. It produces alienation, and we feel that. What it doesn't produce is God getting you. If anything, God, like a lover and like a friend, is wooing you back. He wants you back. He's jealous for you. But he's not going to get you. So if you are convicted, you're troubled with your sin, and you're saying, "Uh uh-oh, God's going to get me. Follow this through with me. Your motive is fear and not love, and you're basically doing it for yourself and not him. Because if all you're concerned about, if your conviction is, God will get me, God won't like me, and it's terror. I don't mean fear in the sense of worship and reverence and awe and one fear in the sense of God, I can't draw near to God because he's somehow not pleased with me. He somehow doesn't like me. He's somehow sick and tired of me. You're only turning to him. You're not walking according to the spirit who wants you to fall in love with Christ. You're walking according to the flesh who's doing things out of self-centered motives. And therefore, you're not experiencing life and peace. Friends, be convicted because you're making one who absolutely treasures you, who calls you the apple of his eye, who cherishes you. Remember what Jude said? I think it's, I actually think it's the hardest command to obey. And of course, we need the Spirit to obey any command. The command to keep yourself in the love of God. I'd rather keep myself in performing for God. It is a struggle for me to really believe that this sermon can stink and I'm still loved by God. That is a weekly struggle for me. My performance junkiness, I'm a performance addict bombards my soul every day. That's why Jude said, keep yourselves in the love of God. Not, grace is not, oh, you've been given grace, now go live any. That is not, grace is a power. It is the only thing in the universe that will lead you to love and worship God. Nothing else works. If it worked, God would put it into effect. That's why Romans 8.3 says, for what the law was powerless to do, weakened though it was by the sinful nature, God did by condemning sin in the flesh. What our performance couldn't do, God did for us. So the only thing that gets you to point A to point B in discipleship, in growth, is the power of transforming grace through the power of living according to the Spirit. Keep yourselves. Maybe make that a new priority in the love of God. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Live according to the Spirit, meaning being filled with Him, which is experiencing and enjoying and knowing God through Christ, which, oh, by the way, He says is life and peace, how you were built in the first place. Let's pray. 
Father, I just am amazed at the wonder of your Trinity, the, how you work together, one God and three persons. We see this in so many of the passages of Scripture. And I pray for your people. I pray for us to keep ourselves in the love of God, to walk according to your spirit, which is life and peace, how we were built, how we were designed by you, our maker, our creator, our designer. Lord, I thank you and I love you for your word and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.